Hi, I'm Joanne Woodson, a solo practitioner specializing in commercial leasing law. I've been a lawyer for a long time, and I know that there's a lot to wrap your head around when it comes to commercial leasing. The goal of my podcast, the Commercial Leasing Diva podcast, is to make your lives as commercial leasing professionals easier and more fun. In the podcast, I speak to other commercial leasing professionals who share their expertise so that we can all improve our commercial leasing game and better serve our clients. This year's California Lawyers Association annual real property conference took place on March 24 and 25 at the beautiful Sonoma Mission Inn. In this episode of the podcast, we focus on the learning opportunities at the annual conference. In particular, the conference is noted for bringing together leaders in the field of real estate to share their knowledge in a fun and collegial environment. In particular, when I interviewed attendees about their educational takeaways from the conference, we focus on three panels as a way of doing a deep dive into what that learning experience is like. The three panels are on restaurant leasing, wine law, and subleasing. And we hope by doing this deep dive into these three particular panels, you'll get a flavor of the invaluable educational takeaways available at the annual conference. There were many excellent panels at the conference, and by focusing on this three, I don't want to take away anything from the other excellent panels, but obviously in the interest of time, we had to limit the panels that we could do a deep dive into. So I hope you enjoy the episode, and I'll see you again soon. I'm doing just rapid fire interviews with a bunch of people who went to the conference and just talking to them about their conference experiences. They were great. The, the content and the substance of the, the sessions and the panels were phenomenal. God, there was so much. I thought a lot of the content, so much of it was great. And without seeming to play to the crowd, uh, your panel on subleasing was, was excellent. I've done, you know, plenty of restaurant leases, but just this has not been on my radar. At the end of it, everyone was like, oh, oh, I have to learn about that. Like everyone was talking <laughs> to each other about figuring out, you know, is this the new, is this the new normal? You know, what direction right. is it going? All that stuff. Having that opportunity to, to learn in that way and then take that information back, it actually helps me negotiate better for my clients later on. Restaurant, the space itself is a really key component to the success of the business, and there's no assurance that you'll survive. You could have a restaurant that does very, very well in one one area and doesn't do well at all in this area because, like to Katie's point, because there's no parking. Restaurants come with built-in fire hazards that other tenants don't have. It's grease traps. It's infrastructure. A lot of shopping centers um, have, you know, they have electricity, they have water, they have sewage. Do they have gas? Most restaurant tenants need gas. It is extremely expensive to bring gas into a restaurant if it's not already there. A great landlord with, you know, whether mixed use or a large retail project is all about generating overall sales, whether it's, you know, marketing, eventing, everything else. And you're bringing the right merchandising mix of tenants together where one plus one plus one equals 17 in terms of activation. When does your timing for your build-out begin. Some landlords, they make the mistake of timing their build-out based on lease execution. I firmly believe that's a mistake 
and I always try to push for timing to start based on permits. Landlords don't like it because landlords want a hard date for rent to start. You know, restaurant leasing is such a niche field. Some people dabble in it, but then, you know, in my, I, I spend a majority of my time doing it. What landlord likes to give a blank check? They don't. Katie, you're, you're probably- I have not yet experienced a landlord who willingly gave anyone a blank check. Right, so, well, <laughs> <laughs> well right, but, but at the same time, so from the yeah. landlord's perspective, they don't want to say, sure, your build-out can start when permits, when you get permits, because permits might take what? What if permits take three years? There were many professionals that came up to me after the talk and they were like, oh wow, like, you know, from here and there we have restaurant leases, but we never thought about these issues and we never really understood the full impact of, you know, making sure that we have these type of clauses, whether they're representing landlords or tenants. And I felt that was really rewarding. No landlord's going to agree to a three-year permit no. period. No. What I do as landlords counsel is we try to understand like sort of here's the amount of time we're willing to give free rent. And then give the tenant the benefit of, especially if it's a, t a tenant that's established business, of knowing how to uh, how to manage themselves. So sometimes you'll see where it's like you've got to have your permits in 90 days, and then you've got the build-out period, and then you've got this. Well, why don't we give them some flexibility and allow the permit time to to move over? Flexibility is really key in knowing what's happening in your market. I went to the section on restaurant leasing. Yeah, which I've done a lot of restaurant leasing and i've also done a lot of lease enforcement on restaurants it's a really challenging type of property and lease and uh that was an amazing panel because it had both a, it had a broker a tenant's lawyer and a landlord's lawyer all talking about the piece of the transaction from their unique perspective are you working with a landlord like you know a kind of a jamestown that is going to get you know, their hands dirty, get into the operations, help. They have, you know, a restaurant design group, they have everything else. We, we get involved and do a lot of this, but the landlords we work with who are comfortable making merchandising decisions or trusting someone who knows how to help them make a merchandising decision are doing so much better than those who are like, I don't really get retail, just find me something for this rent and this, whatever. Like, we don't even work on those projects. It was great that you brought a broker in because she had very interesting perspectives on deals. Right? Laura was great to work with. And I've been working with her for maybe 10 or more years. Mm -hmm. And she really knows her stuff. And it's an opportunity to learn from her and learn what is important sort of before it even gets to my desk, right? What are they thinking about? A lot of it's art. There's some science to it, but some of it is just really deeply understanding like what is needed, understanding, I mean, to some degree, you know, the data of traffic, consumption patterns, not just existing consumption patterns, but what consumption patterns you, patterns you might be able to drive, like in an amenity poor area, you know, bringing in better amenities. Um, some of it is, you know, aligning the right operator with the interest of the landlord, whether it's, you know, a big name, you know, group or it's something local of a certain quality. Yeah, and her so, whole example of Ghirardelli Square, I don't know how how many years you've gone to Ghirardelli Square, but I've been going since 1986. And of course, it's dramatically changed in the last few years. And it was very interesting to hear sort of the building blocks of how they had re-envisioned the space and how to make it a destination. And I thought that was super interesting. What did you do with Ghirardelli Square to, to it's 100% occupied now, right? It's, it's thriving. 
part of the answer is I think I was so young and naive that I was like, this is going to work. It's going to be amazing. And we just like kept going until we figured out how to do it. Um, it's definitely part of the answer. Um, part of it was the ownership group that bought it um, was really willing. First of all, it was a long-term hold. That is incredibly important to try to change, make a project. They had capital to invest in the right deals and the right tenants, and they were willing to take risk. And then making small physical changes to the project to start showing that change was coming so that when people started to visit, they realized something was happening. And then ultimately just watertight from everyone involved in the project, telling a story, telling a story, telling a story. We were literally laughed at at the start, and people started to see like, oh, you guys are serious, you're really sticking to this. Honestly, come on, attorneys, we get stuck at our desks, we're transactional, so we're reading 80-page leases, and we forget that there are people out there worrying about, you know, how is the garbage going to get in and out, right? <laughs> the very practical parts of, of running a restaurant. Typically for food operators, you should try to craft language that says, hey, look, smells relating to the normal pre preparation of food, that's not a nuisance. Let's all agree it's not a nuisance because to Katie's point, the cost of doing uh, like a new ventilation system for that could be so big that it just doesn't make any sense for you to go forward with that lease anymore. So I had a lease where, where Macy's basically said, we're going to stop paying rent if you don't deal with the fish odors from the, seaf the seafood grocery store. It was a grocery store next door. And they, well, they did have a restaurant component. They were frying fish in the front. And we literally went out there. I was out there with my clipboard and representing the landlord and the tenant, the seafood tenant. And we were walking around like in the hallways. We're like, does anyone smell fish here? Okay. And then we had to figure, but you, sometimes you just have to get creative and work with the tenant and be like, okay, we need you to put, you turn your filter this way. So it projects it back into your room. Or send your fan. That yeah. Way. Send your fan that way. Or, or put have a second fan levels. in here. Yeah. Or, or, oh, did anyone check to see if the, fil the fans filtered at the top? Restaurants are a partnership with the landlord in a way that shoe stores are just not. And so sometimes you have to just all roll up your sleeves, get out there, walk around and be like, we need to figure this out because I don't want to wait until Macy's files a lawsuit because it smells like fish. It's really down and dirty, apparently, being a uh, transactional real estate attorney sometimes, We're like in the right? trenches, <laughs> smelling fish. It's really great. <laughs> so Katie was speaking at the very end of her segment, I mean, with minutes to go before the panel ended, about an alternative practice right. to leasing, where instead of leasing the, the space to a tenant who builds it out and operates it and maintains it, where the landlord can maintain ownership and control of the real estate, but instead has the restaurant operated by someone else through a management agreement. And I have not heard of this. I had never come across that before. I've seen management, like management services agreements in the healthcare context. I know right. it's sometimes in like in a hotel context. And it was really funny because the panel ended and I turned around to the people that were sitting near me, which I had either met that day or knew from practice and just looked at them and said, have you ever even heard of this? And all of them were like, no, this is just fascinating. You're basically shifting the risk of who has, you know, if the bottom line risk basically goes from tenant to landlord. I never knew about management agreements for guest um, uh, celebrity chefs. I didn't even know right. there was concept that 
the landlord was entering into business and hiring the chef. We did one a few years ago where a landlord said, this is exactly what I want on the menu, this is how I want it to look, etc." We had to run a process to find the right operator who would be excited about doing You're that. not doing a celebrity chef on that one. Nope. <laughs> At the end of it, everyone was like, oh, oh, I have to learn about that. Like everyone was talking <laughs> to each other about figuring out, you know, is this the new, is this the new normal? You know, what direction right. is it going? All that stuff. Some of the things that Laura was talking about where the landlord's really hands-on, they will own the intellectual property and the management agreement is really just an operations agreement. And so I liked being made aware about that and I want to learn more about it just because it was I felt like I was like out of the loop so so that was really good to hear about the other thing too is is that if they're not a tenant you don't have to do an unlawful detainer and you don't have to do a breach of contract your remedies can go much quicker and we sat there for the entire 15 minute break we didn't get out of our seats and we were just talking about how we could use that and wanted to know more about it and needed more MCLE on it so it was it was just fascinating, um, uh, just a completely new way of, of doing something. I know in my practice, you know, I get very stuck into this is a lease and a lease is this thing and it's always this way. And her really encouraging us, like, let's start thinking outside the box. Like we've got some really lingering challenges from the pandemic in the restaurant world and how can we think more creatively about how to put deals together whether it's the management agreement or the landlord taking on maybe more risk than they've been willing to take on in the past and i really appreciated sort of like you know brush some of the cobwebs away right yeah no it's it's a really important thing to think about and to think about how restaurants have changed right how dining has changed and are people going in and eating in or are they eating outside and what sort of difference that makes to her clients right and when right. she's negotiating i love kitchen nightmares like you watch that you're like that's a nuisance that's a nuisance this is the problem with being a real estate attorney you're like that does not fly someone needs to call the ccnrs um <laughs> and it's it's really important to understand what the realities are right now not just the way we've been doing leases forever and the forms we have but this whole outdoor dining thing. I mean, it's always been nice to eat outside, but now it's it's getting negotiated in a very serious right. way, right? Right. You want to talk about how you tell if someone's a good operator, go look at how clean their kitchen is in the locations that are open. That will tell you. It takes the brokers and it takes the, the restaurateurs and the landlords too, to really think about what, what that goes into that. And if you're not talking to all those people as an attorney, you're going to miss something in your lease. Right. Although sometimes they don't pay their bills and then you have to eat $7,000 worth of sushi. True story. <laughs> it's a lot of sushi. And advising a client who's considering uh, starting or buying a winery or planting a vineyard, buying vineyard land means you need to have a basic understanding of some of the key issues that any new entrant into the wine industry will face and the interplay between lots of different practice areas. And so a lot of what I do is knowing where my limits are, which is why these guys are here. Because um, you need to get your clients the help they need. And we all don't do everything. We specialize. We'll provide you with an awareness of environmental and land use issues from Tina. Does the property's general plan land use designation allow a winery or a winery in a tasting room or a winery combined with some other activity? Real property and business law issues from me. 
do you really have a great piece of land? It could be a really famous vineyard that has terrible soil and critical intellectual property concepts that are likely to arise. Intellectual property is all intangible. So you're looking at trademarks, copyrights, patents, and trade secrets. When you are counseling new wine business clients and looking to get into a small to mid-sized winery or development or purchase of a vineyard, and I'm going to suggest to all of you that all three of us will be at the wine reception immediately following. Um, pouring wine are clients of mine and clients of Craig's. Um, they have instructions to stop us at one glass until you're done with all your questions. <laughs> you know, the last one, and everyone was kind of a little bit tired by the end, but the wine law presentation. I really enjoyed the wine law panel talking about purchasing a winery. That was the one that was kind of like the most dynamic in terms of including other areas of law that relate to the real estate elements, but really um, have to synergize in order to make those deals happen. For example, uh, some general plan policies limit development near resources such as um, riparian corridors. So your base zoning may be agricultural, but lets you have a winery but you may have a zoning overlay such as a scenic resources corridor or a riparian corridor, and you want to identify that early because if you intend to develop raw land, those zoning overlays tend to restrict where you can develop. So if you're in a scenic resources corridor, you may have a one or 200 foot setback from the road, which influences your ability to develop the project that you want. Some jurisdictions during the course of the drought have uh, development moratoriums. There are restrictions on what you can develop on burned parcels. Some jurisdictions only issue X amount of building permits per year. Some of the jurisdictions that regulate or that limit and restrict the number of permits they'll issue in a year, you can reserve your allocation early. Having a biologist look at the property um, to let you know about any uh, special status species or similar constraints actually costs very little. Um, and it's really important to inform as to, to the decision, is this the right property for this particular for these particular folks? Uh, in Sonoma County now, if you apply for a use permit for a winery, they say, thank you very much. Where's your workforce housing plan? Because we would like you to be able to house some of your workforce on site. That's an important thing for a winery developer to know. I've got the Sonoma County ordinance on my iPad if anyone wants to talk afterwards. <laughs> um. So if there was ever an advertisement for why real estate lawyers should stay in their lane and land use lawyers have their lane, you're looking at exhibit A. It's been so long since I've been around like the land use people, but right. wow, it's so multifaceted and all these challenges um, that Jeremy has to like look out for and you know working with that between that and all the IP elements. If you don't build in time or at least have a real serious conversation with your client about building in time to do all this due diligence just on the land use and entitlement side, you're not helping your client. Get IP due diligence counsel involved. It's a specialty. It's, I'm not going to say it's anything like what I just heard in terms of complexity, but it's complex. What's the vineyard? What's planted there if it's an existing vineyard? What's the clone? What's, what are the vineyard management practices historically? What's the tonnage yield over the last few years? Who are you selling it to? How much are they paying for it? What's the market look like for that? What are the water sources? Where do, you, where do, we, put the, where do we put the winery process waste? The set or body of law you're looking at is trademark law. Trademarks are simply words, names, symbols, devices, 
this is not that, or combinations thereof that are used to distinguish the goods or services of one manufacturer or provider of goods or services from another. Do you need easements not just for access, but for water, for putting a wastewater treatment pond or some other facility on a neighboring property? What about power, right? All those things in a normal transaction take on some new aspects in a winery or vineyard transaction. What is the due diligence? And it really is nothing more than an audit to get a good, solid, itemized listing and inventory of all of the properties that are believed to constitute the corpus or the body of the portfolio of intellectual property that's owned by the target winery. I grew up in Southern California in an avocado grove and I used to drive a tractor around with a boom sprayer behind it spraying what we called weed oil on the ground to keep the weeds down. What was weed oil? Anybody spray weed oil like me? It was transmission oil from cars. It was oil. I mean, who knew? I am that old. God, that's terrible. Anyway, all I'm saying is... Due Diligence Council will dig into corporate documents. They'll dig into the website itself. They'll look at trademarks that might never have been registered but are apparently used in a way that's intended to distinguish the goods and services of the winery from others, and thus there are rights there. Those might be common law rights. It might not have been registered, but they can find things there. There are lots of leaking underground storage tanks in wine country, and a lot of them have been pulled. They were leaking above-ground storage tanks in wine country, too. Um, but unless you get a phase one, and unless that, you know, if that phase one recommends a phase two, and then what happens if you find one? Who pays? And you're back in negotiations on a purchase agreement, because who wants to negotiate that up front? Um, you know, it, it's, it, it, there's a limit to what you can handle. Sometimes you get a curveball, but just be prepared because it happens. And I just went, wow. You guys are experts in your field, and anyone who thinks that they can just walk in and negotiate a wine deal of oh, no, no. whoa, I just, I, I just <laughs> from the land use and real estate issues all the way to the intellectual property issues and environmental issues, everything that comes with and business decisions when you're buying a winery or a vineyard. No, thank you. Exactly. <laughs> I know where I'm sitting. No, now it. I know who to call. Yes. Exactly. I've um, my office is in Napa, so I've participated in vineyard sales on the opposite side, where we're selling a vineyard, but I haven't ever participated on the other side. So um, that was quite interesting to me. But that was really, really interesting. And if you were so inclined to try and, you know, do a deal, if you're paying attention, you really have a checklist of all the things you need to look out for. In your course materials, you have Tina's due diligence checklist for land use and environmental issues. You have two checklists from me, and then Craig's got a checklist for you as well. Boy, they covered some, you know, a lot of material. They covered it well. Thank, Thank you, you all for coming. We'll see you guys at the wine reception. So what we thought we'd start out is just a quick introduction talking about the difference between assignment and sublease because this is something that people find extremely confusing. So a sublease is something less than the whole lease right. So you may be taking part of the premises, you may be taking it for something less than the whole term, you may be paying a different rent than the master tenant is paying. An assignment means that the new tenant, the assignee, steps right into the shoes of the master tenant. 
There's no change to the lease at all in a pure assignment. The lease expires on the day that it would ordinarily expire. The tenant pays the exact same rent as the original tenant, etc. Again, a sublease is then some lesser portion of that, even if the term of the lease of the sublease would expire only one day less than the term of the master lease. That's again just a broad sketch, but people often get confused about that. So I'm going to turn it over to Laura because one of the things that our clients have to be first advised of is subleases suck. I went to the subleasing panel and really enjoyed that. Uh, without seeming to play to the crowd, uh, your panel on subleasing was was excellent. And then I also loved your panel with Laura, who I've known for forever. Laura Drossman, who was on the panel, is a friend of mine. I've done deals with her. And so it was a moment to get into her brain. Yeah, so as, as a lot of us who do commercial leasing work know, since COVID, since the reduction in the demand for office space in particular, um, it's, it's contributed towards a huge storm of subleasing work. There are certain vulnerabilities that you have that are inherent of being a subtenant. You are not in privity with the landowner. The sub-landlord remains as like your main point of privity and communication with the building. Sometimes the landlord will communicate directly, but it really is up to the discretion of the landlord in a particular situation. Because people are really in like belt tightening mode and with all the rifts going on, and then one of the ways they're trying to engage in cost savings is um, by not hiring counsel to negotiate subleases. So a lot of times people make the mistaken assumption, and that this is especially true of clients, that doing a sublease should somehow be easier because it's like sub, right? So shouldn't that just take you a few minutes? I find that many landlords do not follow every step and procedure that's laid out in that uh, lease itself. This is gonna be time intensive. It's gonna take me, I have to read the entire master lease I either then, as sub-landlord's counsel, have to draft a sublease, or as sub-tenant's counsel, then I have to read it. When I represent the landlord, we start those conversations early, get a feel for whether they're open to the concept, open to some adjustments in the terms, how rigorous they might be. Um, you put your feelers out there, and this is what's going on, and what do you think? Unless your opposing counsel is Joanne, who has a very, very different perspective when she's advising her landlord clients, and I'm sure you'll, you'll touch on that. And depending on the quality of the counsel on the other side, by which I mean how much experience they have with subleasing, will depend on how easy or hard your job is at that point. It's very, very important to make sure that the sub-landlord has obligations that are set forth in the sublease to make sure they have to pay rent. They have to notify you if there's an issue. Um, ideally, you get a right to cure if, or an opportunity if you can, um, if they're not performing under their lease. Because the big risk, of course, is it's a house of cards, and if the landlord holds the sub-landlord in default, the landlord has the option to close the whole stack, in which case you can lose your tenancy rights unless you can negotiate to get an attornment or a non-disturbance, which is a very difficult thing to achieve. Also, another thing that's come up a lot are sub-subleases, where it adds another layer. I really appreciated that she's always thinking about how not just she's going to get her sub-tenants into a space, but how she's going to get them out of it. You want to put an out clause in the sublease that says, hey, there's a 30-day consent period, but if this isn't consented to within 45 days or maybe 60 days of the date of mutual execution, out of we're out, yeah, so that they out. can't sit around waiting forever. Because you've signed the sublease, 
and you're bound to the sublease on the terms that are in the master lease unless you give yourself a kickout. And she's already negotiating that right there, right? It's like, right. yeah, that that is some good lawyering there. So non-disturbance is where if the tenant goes sideways under the lease without non-disturbance, the sublease automatically terminates. This is the risk that we were talking about before and why subleases are terrible, is because you are always at the mercy of the good behavior of your sublandlord. As far as the surrender obligations, you know, as part of your due diligence, you do want to think about what's going to be happening at the end, who's going to be restoring the space back to however it was. In your seminar, they were talking about, you know, different subleasing issues that could come up and some that would be challenging and to really watch out for and came across the restoration of premises and whether the subtenant or or the original tenant would be responsible for restoration of premises if, if not the landlord. Because what the broker is going to do in the LOI is they're going to put that the sublease expires on the same day as the master lease. You're the subtenant, you should not be stuck having to do all that restoration work. The master tenant needs to go in and make sure there aren't holes in the wall and whatever. In fact, maybe they want seven days early because if there's a problem, the master tenant may not have time to get the subtenant to fix it. So master tenant has to fix it or the master tenant's in holdover. Subtenant left. They, they got out when they were supposed to, but now there's holes in the walls. I realized that that issue was something that I was gonna have to move up to my checklist to maybe like one or two. The folks that have to deal with Prop C and the rents tax in San Francisco, um, for a long time, there's been pushback about who should be paying it in a sublease. In uh, 2019, a law came into effect in San Francisco. It's a 3.5% uh, gross receipts tax on commercial rents. And the law itself doesn't apply any sort of credit for the tax paid per property. So if you have a sublease or a sub-sublease, the tax can be charged at multiple levels. And so this has become a point of negotiation when you're negotiating, well, who pays the Prop C? Sometimes, though, the subtenant does get subject to what you might consider double taxation, and this is the way it works. So typically, in the deals that I do, the assumption has, it's really shaken out that the market condition, and let me know if you disagree, Laura, is that the subtenant pays the Prop C tax. Um, so in the situation where the lease predates the Prop C, and the lease didn't cover it, and so the master landlord under the master lease is paying Prop C, they consider that part of the real estate tax and they pass it as a pro rata share as part of CAM to the tenant. If the sublease has also CAM and the tenant is paying, the subtenant is paying its pro rata share of the tenant's pro rata share, there will be a trickle down effect where that Prop C that the master landlord is paying gets also paid by the subtenant. And she kind of just conceded, yep, it's going to be the subtenant. You know, you, you, chances are and it was just nice to hear yeah there seems to be whether you like it or not a general agreement whether it's quote unquote fair or not yeah so let's yeah. let's stop fussing about that right yeah particularly in our current market where some people might be taking on some amazing spaces that have been really upgraded by failed startups or or, or anything and the a clause like that could undermine the whole value of the, of the sublease to begin with so Probably my biggest substantive takeaway from the conference is being more thorough in what provisions I knock out of the is being not applicable on the master lease. So this gets into the kind of nitty gritty, but as you're reading a master lease, what you're doing is everywhere where the word landlord appears, 
it now means sub-landlord. Everywhere that tenant appears, it now means subtenant. And every time you're reading a sentence in the master lease, you go, does that make sense? Does that make sense? So it'll say, landlord is responsible for the building structure in all building systems. Well, the sub-landlord's not, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not taking that on. So then I would have a third paragraph in my incorporation exclusion provision, which basically says everywhere where it says landlord, it continues to be read as landlord. I can't tell you how many seminars I go to where you hear them talking about things like, well, you should be doing this and you should be doing this and this is what you need to be doing. It's like, okay, but how do I do that in practice? Like, I don't understand how to implement that into my lease or I don't understand what am I supposed to look for in the lease, you know? Subleases are very challenging and I have one of them going right now. So having your panel was really, really amazing because all the, all the speakers were so knowledgeable. And I was telling my mom the whole time, I was like, I wish I could just download their knowledge into my head because you know so much. And I, it's just, it's amazing. And so it was really interesting to sit through that and, and listen to it with an ear based on what I was doing in that transaction, you know, that I had a real immediacy because that's something you're working on. Exactly. She's my mom's not a lawyer and she came with me and she was like, I understood everything they were saying, even though I'm not a lawyer. So they clearly know how to explain things well. I was like, yeah. Thank you. Anyway, feel free to come and ask more questions. Yeah. Thank you. Were there some other substantive legal takeaways that linger a few weeks after the conference? Um, the, yeah, the ethics panel was really interesting because, um, in terms of what is what 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 our professional requirements are now in terms of getting consent on emails and reply alls and whatnot. So I really enjoyed the first panel with Krista Mitzel, who's a good friend of mine, and just really interesting women on that panel. I really enjoyed the case law update. Oh, the case update was excellent, um, and there were um, there were just a, a you know a, a, a long list of cases that were applicable that I probably wouldn't have time to have read or, or might not have thought were applicable. I mean, they went through so many and exactly that brought things to my attention that I wouldn't have. I think as a transactional attorney, a lot of times I forget <laughs> that that is something I need to know. Rules regarding um, liability for, for recreational land. You know, there were some interesting cases mm -hmm. that came up here. So that was really good. And they had a couple of commercial landlord cases in there and I was like oh great you know so really good information there I'm excited to announce that registration is now open for the 2024 real property law retreat and ninth annual women in commercial leasing law symposium which will take place in Palm Springs from March 8 to 10 please uh, check out the website. We've got the full program up there. There will be four great commercial leasing seminars, as well as seminars on federal Indian law and many other great real property topics. I hope to see you there. The podcast is sponsored in part by commercial leasing law seminars. This is my online platform where I offer e-courses in commercial leasing topics. I have two courses on the AIR form leases. My next course, which is a combination of pre-recorded videos and weekly Zooms, will launch on January 22nd. This is the third time I'm offering the course. 
I've had really positive feedback on the course, which is a deep dive into letters of intent as a vehicle for learning commercial leasing basics. And then finally, I'm very excited to be launching my newest course, which is on drafting and negotiating commercial leases. We will be doing a deep dive into all the basic provisions of a lease. And if you're familiar with commercial leasing, you'll know that's a lot, um, but we're gonna really break it down in this six week course and provide you with lots of guidance on how to really up your commercial leasing game. So I hope to see you at the annual conference and I certainly hope to see you as well in some of my courses.